Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited for today's episode because we unravel the nuances of a phenomenon that affects millions of people here in the United States, myself included. I'm talking about imposter syndrome. And our guest, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, is a subject matter expert that will guide us through the process of overcoming imposter syndrome. Based on the methods outlined in the book she co-wrote with her husband, Dr. Richard Orbe Austin. The book is called Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. Stay tuned for this insightful and empowering conversation. But first, some information about Dr. Orbe Austin. Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin is a licensed psychologist and executive coach with a focus on career advancement and leadership development. She is a co-founder and partner of Dynamic Transition Psychological Consulting, a career and executive coaching consultancy where she works mostly with high potential managers and executives. She earned her doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University. Her views about career advancement, job transitions, leadership, and diversity and inclusion are regularly sought by the media, and she appeared in outlets such as The New York Times, NBC News, Forbes, The Huffington Post, Refinery29, Business Insider, and Insight into Diversity. She has also been honored as a top voice on LinkedIn in the area of job search and careers. Dr. Orbe Austin has been an invited speaker at various national conferences. She recently gave a TEDx talk entitled The Imposter Syndrome Paradox. She regularly consults with organizations in the private sector, nonprofits, and educational institutions in supporting their employees and senior leadership teams to address gender bias, diversity, equity, and inclusion concerns, leadership development, effective communication, team cohesion, and managing conflict. Her practice also consults to universities on the reorganization and evaluation of their career centers to enhance their efficacy and metrics in order to improve service delivery, data analysis, and student career outcomes. Our conversation with Dr. Orbe Austin today is based on her book, Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life, is co-authored with her partner, Dr. Richard Orbe Austin, and was released in April 2020. Welcome back to LPD Cast. I'm your host, Eloy Garcia, and today we're speaking with subject matter expert, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin, about a phenomenon that affects millions of people, which is the imposter syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Orbe Austin. How are you? Thank you for having me, Eloy. I'm happy to be here, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. To begin, could you tell us what is imposter syndrome? So imposter syndrome is the phenomenon where you don't internalize your skills, accomplishments, expertise, credentials. And as a result of that, you then fear being exposed as a fraud or incompetent in certain situations, especially high profile, high visibility situations. As a result of those experiences, you tend to either overwork or self-sabotage in a method of of managing the performance anxiety. So it leads to all kinds of, you know, things, including burnout, kind of insecurities about your actual performance, 
um, difficulty taking in positive feedback, really having trouble managing sort of the internal things that go on around your performance. And so that's generally, you know, how it works. It's not a mental, a lot of people wonder if it's a mental illness, not a mental illness. It is just a phenomenon that exists um, for people who are typically very successful, high functioning, you know, have a lot of credentials and they're not an imposter, oddly enough, even though it's called the imposter's phenomenon. They're, they're no, nowhere near an imposter. Thank you for that description. Who experiences imposter syndrome? So I think because the phenomenon was initially discovered in the late 70s by two psychologists, Drs. Clance and Imes, working with women, they were working with women at a university, largely faculty members, graduate students, and they were seeing this experience where they were seeing highly accomplished people really doubt their performances and start to see themselves as frauds or incompetent. They wondered what it was. A lot of people assume that it's only women. However, the data has shown that men experience it too. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, people of color experience it more. That's not true. The data doesn't find that. The data is pretty inconsistent around who, find, who experiences it more. So my guess is that we all experienced it pretty substantially. It's pretty universal. And for those that haven't watched your TEDx talk, could you talk to us about your personal experience with imposter syndrome? Sure. So the topic was not unfamiliar to me because as a, as a grad student in psych, I had learned about the topic, but I, I don't know if I'd ever, even though many of us apply diagnoses to ourselves as we're learning about them, I don't think I ever applied imposter phenomenon to myself in, in such a direct way until I, after I had graduated, I was in a job that was not necessarily within my talent scope. It was, it was kind of I was kind of lost and I took a job and it really didn't fit me um, and fit what I was capable of doing. However, I was being treated really poorly by my boss who, you know, had me like, was yelling at me over like serving warm coffee. It was really rough, um, you know, and it got me doubting whether or not, you know, I could do what I wanted to do. Actually, to be honest, I wasn't even sure what I wanted to do, but I think I wanted to use my PhD in much more useful ways than I was. And I got stuck at this job and I could not, I could not leave it. And he was becoming progressively more abusive over the time that I was there. And it was really, you know, painful and problematic. And I would come home and I'd talk to my husband and I'd be like, you know, I tell him what would on, on during the day. And he'd be like, quit this job or start looking for a new one, like do something. And I just couldn't, I was paralyzed. And it wasn't until I was in a senior staff meeting. It was all women in this, in his senior staff. And there was music playing in the background. And he, somebody asked, what's that music playing in the background? He said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And in that moment, I just like woke up and I was like, what am I doing? Like, where, what am I doing? I'm, I'm wasting all the things I worked for, for, to work for this animal. And and he's going to keep oppressing me. Like, this is not going to get better. There's no performance I'm ever going to be able to do that's going to make him like me or treat me better. I, I got to get out of here. And I went back to my office and after the meeting was done, I closed the door and I told my husband, I'm going to quit. He said, quit. And I, it was a Friday and I went into my office over the weekend. I cleared out my office, cleared my computer <laughs> and on Monday morning, um, quit. And it was brutal because he was not a well man. And so he like yelled at me, he cried. It was a very disturbing experience. And 
he begged me not to go because my money was encumbered, which in grant terms means he couldn't use the money for anything else besides my salary. And I left. And the last thing I remember him saying to me is like, you'll never work in education again. Like I will make sure of it. It was like, you know, I'll make sure that everyone knows what you did. And it was so scary because I think it was this moment where I felt like very empowered to do what I needed to do for myself. And yet he was still participating and disempowering me. So I was still like very much stuck. And I remember going home. I don't even remember going home. Actually, I sort of had like a, uh, like I was in like a fugue state between like that incident and getting home. I don't remember that period at all. I just remember being in my living room and like walking around in circles, like having a panic attack and figuring out, Oh my God, my whole career is done. I don't know what I've done. What have I done? You know, like it was just a bad, you know, cause I quit on the spot. I didn't give him any notice. I was just like, I'm out of here. And, you know, I think in that moment, it was the moment I realized that the, the imposter syndrome was so profound. It had made me make really bad choices in my career because I didn't feel worthy enough of like the things that I, I, that I eventually really wanted. I had always really wanted them, but never allowed myself to give myself the space to pursue them. And so, you know, I'll give you the, the short end of the story, which is like in, within, a, within a week, I had a new job and that job was like, working, I was working like, I with the other job I was working like full time. And this job was working like two or three days a week. And I was making more than I made at the full time job. And I had it within, within weeks. And I think it was, it was a good reminder for me, like, you know, this kind of myth of that I was not worthy, that I was not capable, that, you know, I, I had no options was a myth. And I, so I had to work on my imposter syndrome for many, many years to deal, to deal with it fully. But it was the first moment, I think, with the turning point for me where I recognized that I had it and I did something about it, but it was a rough moment. Thank you for sharing. That sounds really intense, like yeah. really difficult to go through. And, and it's an interesting intersection of imposter syndrome and working for someone that isn't well and that's abusive. Yeah. I feel like that can heighten everything that you're experiencing. Yeah, and I think it's common for people with imposter syndrome to work for certain types of toxic bosses. And I think it's because we because we devalue ourselves, we are drawn to people who devalue us also. It's not always the case, but I think, you know, it can be the case and I think what happens is then they reinforce our experience of imposter syndrome. They treat us like frauds and then we feel like see we're frauds. And so I think it can be a very common experience. How important was it, how empowering was it to have your husband giving you the other side of that experience and empowering you in ways that were genuine and, and real, and I, I would say rooted in, in love? How, how was that for you? It was, it, it was frustrating, actually. <laughs> in some real, and to be honest, if I, if I were to think about what it was like, he was always rooting for me and he was always like, you are capable of massive things and you don't, you don't understand it, you, you know? And he, he was like, you know, when he has this famous saying that I, that, we, that I say in the Ted talk, which is like, when you work as hard for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And I remember him saying that to me and I just could not process it. I just thought this is not helping me. Um, <laughs> I don't feel very unstoppable right now. And I think, you know, I think cause he was so persistent, his narrative never changed about me you know, his, his belief in me never changed, despite the fact that he was encouraging me to do things for myself and advocate for myself. And I wasn't, which can be very frustrating for someone, but he just held, he held fast. And I think that, and it never changed. And so I think that was really helpful for me to really 
believe him. Like I was like, well, if he was blowing smoke, why would he blow smoke for this long and this frustrating? And he really just, I was like, I have to believe him more than I can believe strangers who really don't know me. And I finally was able to internalize him and, and really able to kind of take his words in and really own them and live in that. It took me a while. It was a while. It was a couple probably years where I was able to fully take it in. But it, it, was a, it was a process, but he always stood by it and he always, and he never wavered. And so, you know, so I, I'm grateful to him for holding something for me that I could not hold for myself at the time. And, you know, he was, he was right. You know, he was right that if once I took that work that I was putting into other people to prove myself and actually began to own it for myself and the dreams that I had for myself, I was able to kind of live the dreams that I had that I wouldn't even let myself believe, you know. That's really wonderful and awesome advice. Just really actually empowering advice. Yes. And you and your husband co-authored a book mm-hmm. that I, I just think it's wonderful called yes. Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt and Succeed in Life. And I really, really love this book so much. It was so illuminating and again, empower. I keep saying this word empowering, but it's true. Yeah. And I think it's, required. I think that's a part that's required to combat and rectify the imposter syndrome that we that we feel. And a section that hit home about imposter syndrome for me was the chapter on family dynamics. And personally, there are some levels of narcissism in my family. And I do have a sibling with undiagnosed mental illness that is that is pretty severe. So for us dealing with these specific issues, how can we begin to cope or begin to rectify the imposter syndrome that we feel? I think, you know, you point to a really fascinating piece of, of, of imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of people don't recognize it, which is that, you know, imposter syndrome comes from our early childhood experiences and the ways in which, you know, sometimes unbeknownst to our parents or caregivers, like they didn't, they weren't intending for this to happen generally, but you know, they participated in somehow, you know, creating these levels of insecurities and and inabilities for us to internalize these accomplishments and skills and strengths that we had. And I think that it's so important to, to really understand the dynamics that occurred because oftentimes we then get caught replicating them or engaging in them again, if we don't understand them and rectify them. And so I think it is such a central component of dealing with imposter syndrome. A lot of people say, oh, imposter syndrome comes from social media. No, it doesn't. It comes from your early history. Social media didn't do that to you. It's triggering you. It's triggering you. It it is triggering, but it's not necessarily the origins of, of what has happened. And so I think it's so important to kind of recognize the family dynamics and then be able to acknowledge them, acknowledge how they're connected to triggers, and then also be able to forgive and let go. And so there's a piece of that chapter, a piece of one of the chapters that's about the expressive letter. And that exercise is so hard. It's the hardest exercise in the book, where in essence, you have to write a letter to some of the people involved in constructing your imposter syndrome and outline sort of how it affected you in a very emotionally rooted way, right? You you have to deal with the feelings that come up. And then at the end of the letter, forgive them, read it to somebody else who you trust, not them, don't read it to them, read it to somebody you trust and, and then get rid of it. It's a symbolic way of acknowledging what you've been through, having somebody validate and witness that experience and then let it go. 
as a method of getting a method of moving on. And so I do think it's super important to deal with those origin issues. Um, and we, we tackle that in the best way we possibly can in that chapter. And there's clearly a lot to deal with, but I think it's, it's so important. I think it also, you know, is important to think about how also a therapist can be helpful in these situations. Like if you get to that chapter in the book and it feels too much, find a therapist, you know, find somebody to help you work through those components with you so that you don't just skip it and, and not deal with it because it is so central. Clearly when we developed the book, it came from our knowledge of research and also from our practice and what had worked effectively in our practice with helping people move the needle on their posture syndrome. So we know that it, it works, but we've done it. We've actually done a course on the book and we see when people actually do the letter and finish the letter and read it to somebody and get rid of it, the change is monumental. There's something that like switches in somebody having done that, that you see when, when other people have like not done that piece or wait longer, they're not getting the same kind of like light bulb that goes off. It's a very hard process, but it, there's something about that letter and that exercise that just changes things. Thank you for mentioning that letter in the forgiveness segment. And you do say in the book, this is going to be difficult. However, you need to do it. It's yeah. an integral part of this process, that forgiveness segment. Yeah. And I think part of the forgiveness segment is for, for those that were involved in creating the environment for when our imposter syndrome began. But then also there's a, like a certain level of self-forgiveness that we kind of feel or that we go through because maybe we feel once we find out what imposter syndrome is, then we can feel guilty for engaging in it or for doing it or for the mistakes that we made when we were in the situation. So yeah. I think that it's the forgiveness segment and that letter is an important part because it transcends so much of yes. the imposter syndrome experience. I think that's a fantastic point. It's not something we directly deal with in the book, but I think it is so important that you also forgive yourself because in addition to all the things that you mentioned that are true, also the lost time, like the time that we've lost in this period of imposter syndrome where we haven't been living, you know, our best lives and no matter when, like, whether it's like you're at, you know, at an amazing job, but you hate it or that you're miserable, you know, you've missed a period of time. Um, and you really just have to connect with the fact and forgive yourself and be graceful to yourself around that. There's still learning in it. There's still, there's still things that you're getting from those periods of time and that moving forward, it's going to be very different. In the section about triggers, I found it interesting that interactions that would be deemed as positives can tr be triggers for people with imposter syndrome. For example, compliments. How can compliments be triggers instead of reinforcing agents? And I think that's what we try to help you do in the book is try to see them very differently and be able to kind of recognize them as a relational moment in which somebody is recognizing your accomplishment, your skill, your strength. But I think for people with imposter syndrome, it makes people feel like seen in a way that's uncomfortable. And so oftentimes they feel like, oh, well, you didn't see the mistake I made before I, you know, actually did the thing, or you didn't see the fact that it took me like twice as much time to develop that presentation that it should take the average person. Or, you know, they feel like, you know, clearly you're complimenting me because you don't know me. And there's a real kind of like threat in that compliment that the imposter syndrome is driving that helps people to dismiss the compliment, helps people with imposter syndrome to kind of really get uncomfortable in those moments and feel very vulnerable. And I think we have to sort of re kind of like 
pattern the way we engage in compliments, but it's super, when you're working on it, it's super conscious. You have to really learn to kind of say, you know, I receive that, or I take that in, or I like, I appreciate that. Even when your, your gut instinct is to kind of deny the compliment or to diminish your involvement in whatever they're complimenting, you really have to work on, on receiving it more directly. And in the beginning, it feels really uncomfortable, but it is such an important piece of like really building community because oftentimes with imposter syndrome, you're dealing with it alone because you don't want to tell anybody that you feel like you're incompetent or a fraud because then that might have them really all discover it, uh, which is your worst fear. So it's very silent and you're dealing with it a lot on your own. And, and it's so important to build community around the process that is vital. In processing compliments, just personally, I would definitely always say something that would, and it was kind of, it was a knee-jerk reaction. I wasn't even really thinking about it. And then after I'd even say like, oh, why did I say that? And then it's like this cycle that (laughs) is so irritating when someone would give a compliment and say, oh, well, a lot of times with group work or with teamwork, as difficult as that can be, I would say, oh, you know, it's just, it's a great team. And that can be true sometimes. And then other times it's like, I literally had to do all of this by myself. (laughs) Exactly. And even when the team is great and you did, you contributed and they're talking about your contribution, you can still, you can still take in your contribution. And the fact they're recognizing your contribution, despite the fact that, you know, the team also is fantastic too. It's, it can be a both and. Yes, the both and. I love that concept uh, in the book as well, the both and. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, it's moving away from these black and white ideas of either or, either I'm perfect or I suck. You know, either, you know, this was done to my standard or it was not. And really beginning to realize that things are much more gray than that. And it's okay for things to, to, for you to make a mistake and it's still to be great. It can be the both and. It can be that you made a mistake and the work is still good. And so really helping people to move away from these black and white ideas about what is great performance, what is what, what is being a good worker, a good student, a good whatever, and getting away from these perfectionistic notions that are unhealthy, especially because perfectionism is so highly correlated with imposter syndrome. Absolutely. It took me what, what I would call baby steps to get to the point where I can just say like, thank you. Like you were saying about a compliment or I appreciate that. I would, I would say, Oh, you're, yeah. you're sweet. Or that's really nice. And kind of put on, Oh, they're just nice. They're just a nice person. They give, they're giving these compliments to <laughs> yes, everyone, exactly. you know, and it took me so long to just be able to say, thank you. You know, I appreciate that. Or, or, you know, that, that was, that was a tough project. I'm glad we, I'm glad we were able to, you know, to do it successfully. And, the first few times I'd just say, thank you. I felt like the audacity that you have. Yes, exactly. you know? <laughs> and in thinking about it after it really, it really spoke to how little credit I would allow myself to live yes. in and for how short of a period of time yes. before I was back on the wagon again, telling myself things that weren't empowering and putting myself in the cycle of, well, now you have to do something bigger and better. Yep. Now you have to do something faster. Now yep. you have to keep them, you know, whether it's supervisors at work or whether it's professors, like you have to make sure that they always maintain this certain perception of you. Yes. And and it's exhausting and it gets yeah. in the way of the interpersonal relationship. Exactly. And I think you're, you're pointing to this idea, this, this, the concept of the imposter cycle, right? That, and even in, even in that imposter cycle, you can kind of, 
even if you get positive feedback because you're denying it and you're not engaging it, you then engage in this imposter cycle around where the performance again, every time it's bigger, better, you know, more perfect, you know, like it, it never, it never ends. And I think oftentimes people think when I get this accolade or when I get this degree, or when I get this promotion, it will go away. It gets worse. It doesn't get better. It gets worse with the greater performance, the greater visibility, the greater responsibility. It doesn't get better. You have, in order for it to get better, you have to directly deal with it. Now, your book is formatted like a workbook, which I think mm -hmm. is genius. <laughs> Why was it important for you to format the book in this way? I think because when when Richard and I, the, the publisher actually approached us um, and they wanted us to write, because we had been writing about similar things and, and they wanted us to write this book on imposter syndrome. And they were pretty supportive in us kind of going whatever direction. They didn't have a plan. They were like, you go and you're the experts and you do what you need to do. And which is lovely. And I think Richard and I were like, let's take this responsibility super seriously and let's give people a book that works, that is backed by research and, and backed by our own knowledge of the, of the area and that they can actually walk away from each chapter with a new set of tools. And so for us, it became really important that the book be like a program that you need to kind of like, you know, kind of get each skill set as you walk from step to step and by the end of it, be able to have this repertoire of skills that you can now use to combat your imposter syndrome. And so it became important for us to feel like you could do work that you would do with us or do with somebody, you know, do with a coach or a therapist and actually do it with yourself, do it with a book club, do it, you know, do it in certain circumstances on your own and that you would get something concrete, useful, and, you know, that would transition you to the next place. And that's why it became really important. We, we didn't want to be a self-help book that you just read. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. We wanted to be like, wow, like I actually have, I have some skills now that I can do something differently in this moment, you know, next time. And it really does feel that way. It feels like you are being coached. It feels like this is a, a one-on-one, -on -one, a very personal, you know, meeting with, with a coach, with a consultant, with a therapist, honestly, <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> and I really appreciated it because as, you know, as we're reading, we think, oh, I'll remember that or oh, I'll highlight it or I'll write this note and I'll come back to it. And, you know, seldomly do we do that because yeah. our attention is pulled in so many different areas. But when you have this workbook and you have the page in front of you and you were reading and, or, or with audiobook, I have audiobook and physical so I'll have audiobook and I'll go to the page and it's like, okay, now write this, now do this and now engage in this exercise. It really is a more well-rounded experience. It's a really thorough experience. And I end up feeling capable, which I think is really important for when we're dealing with imposter syndrome at different stages of yeah. dealing with imposter syndrome of the I, feeling I capable. That. Yeah, I love that because that's exactly what we were hoping is that you would feel like you were equipped and that you were capable of managing this now. Because a lot of people feel, say like, you know, I have imposter syndrome. It's like mic drop. It's like, no, not mic drop. You know, like you can do something about it, but then they're like, like what? And like a lot of people, you know, tout like, you know, that they know what to do and that, you know, they, they don't practice. They don't, and they're like, say mantras. It's not that simple. You know, anyone who does the book, you know, knows it's hard. Like that book is hard. Like I will tell people like, look, it's being like being shot out of a cannon. It's not a, it's not a like easy breezy weekend read. 
it's hard. You're going to face a lot of things, but when, when you get out of it, if you kind of go through all the steps, you will see a significant change in your experience. Um, we're seeing already with the people who've taken the course, we're seeing like a 30% decrease in their imposter syndrome scores from completing the course, which we never thought we would get anywhere near that. That's massive in 12 weeks. So we're seeing a massive change. So it shows us that the book works, but you, it's, it's not a book you want to just read and go like, I'll go back to those exercises because you won't. Yeah. Because they're hard. <laughs> yeah. You got to yeah. deal with it like step by step. You got to deal with it and you got to learn because it, it, it will equip you in a way that, you know, will change everything. And, I, and you asked me earlier about my own experience. And I will say, like, I was in this job that, you know, was far underneath my skills and talents. And, you know, now that I'm outside of my imposter syndrome, it, it peaks up. It, I get triggered, but I know how to handle it. My life's radically different. I own my own practice. I run my own life. I have books. I have trainings. I, you know, I speak all over the world. I have a very different life, but it only was possible because I confronted my imposter syndrome and dealt with it. If not, I would have still probably been working for that evil piece of crap, you know, like you know, 15, 20 years later. And so like I think it's really important to recognize like you can change. And I think that's the that's what's been exciting about seeing people do the book live in the course is that. We've seen them. We're seeing them like get raises and ask for promotions. And like, you know, one of our cohort people wanted to do a TED talk and we were like, let's do a TED talk in 12 weeks. So like, I don't think it's possible. And then they did it. You know, it, it really, it really shows you that you can show up for yourself, but you gotta do the work, you know? Yes, it is a very transformative process. I was one of those people that thought, oh, I'll read this. This is going to be like a weekend read because it's not it's not a huge book, which is nope. which is wonderful. It's also very palatable. And then it's like chapter two, family dynamics. And I had to close it and set it aside for a little bit. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, this this isn't going to be what I thought it was. Um, but it was so much more. And I think because we don't know what we don't know until, yeah. you know, until we learn it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a, a holistic process. This is going to yeah. be mind, body, soul. This yes. A <laughs> lot of um, honesty. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful that you have the results that you do. I think it speaks to, obviously, the very intentional processes that you put into it, you and your husband put into it. Mm -hmm. And with the outcome that you wanted, from what I gather, you wanted people to really heal from yeah. this to really yes. rectify this and make it a thing of the past like to you know like the book says to own your greatness because one of the things Richard and I say is like it's our mission for amazing wonderful people to live in their in their greatness like to live in the in your dreams to live in the things that you you want for yourself but the only way that happens is when you have agency and you realize that you you can do these things they are not they are not like um, pie in the sky dreams. You can actually execute these things. You just need to believe in yourself. But going from not believing yourself to believing in yourself is a journey and a, and a difficult one at that. And I think I love what you say about how you say you put the book down. Like, look, at times put the book down. Like if it's too much, put it down, you know, like, and then think about sort of why you're putting it down and think about what you need to move forward. Do you need to have an accountability partner? Do you need to do this within a book club? Do you need a therapist? Like, what do you need? But get it right. Don't put the book down and let it grow, grow, like grow mold on it or like dust on it. Like <laughs> really go back to it, but think about why you're stopping and what you need to keep moving forward. Because I think you don't want to put yourself through stress to have to deal with the book and feel like you get through it, but you're, you're like doing it with white knuckles and like freaking out. 
you want to actually feel like you can take in what you're learning and, and that it's really kind of moving the needle. And so it might be something you do over a long period of time, like six months or nine months, but get the help and support that you need to do it. It was very real, you know, having, I picked it up, I picked it up right away. <laughs> I put it down for some minute and then I picked it up. <laughs> That's and impressive. I, I went That's back. That's a rough chapter. <laughs> I just, I kept rereading. I kept rereading that like paragraph. I kept rereading that paragraph and and really, because it was tough for me to accept that, you know what, there, there are some levels of narcissism in my yeah. family. Yeah. And then I'd had to think about, well, why? And, and um, being a first-gen student, it's, like we were speaking uh, a bit before this uh, conversation and as first gen students, when we go to advice, parents for advice, they don't know, you know, they don't know. Yeah, so they're like, Oh, no. just, you know, work harder. And it's like, yes. we're already at our wit end, you know? Um, so also realizing and, and extending grace to like kind of everyone involved yes. and then, you know, just coming to terms and then saying, okay, you know, this, this is what it is. And I'm going to read the next page because it's going to tell me how to deal and then <laughs> yes. just keep moving through it. So we've, um, yeah. we've spoken about some nuances of imposter syndrome. Can you talk to us about the three C's framework and how we can combat sure. imposter syndrome? Yeah. And before, before we move on to that, I, w- I want to just acknowledge the fact that, yeah, it's so important to, to, like you said, extend grace, right? Like you're going to kind of come to these moments where you're like, you knew that this was an issue, but then you have now a label for it or like a word to understand it. And that can be really kind of, it can feel like problematic and pathologizing, but I think the point of the the terms are to help organize and understand what you're seeing, not to pathologize and not to make you know people feel bad or wrong. Um, and I think it's so important to understand that oftentimes, like even narcissism, grows out of, you know, like people think, oh, narcissists are just these mean, bad people. And yes, what they do is not great. And it is, it, it's hurtful and it, it is mean in ways, but oftentimes it comes from a lack of emotional responsiveness from their caregivers. Like it doesn't come from evilness. It comes from a lack of responsiveness and they don't get what they need emotionally. And they have to build this outer shell of, of narcissistic behaviors to make them feel good about themselves because nobody made them feel good as, as children. And so like it helps, at least it helps me where, when I understand where things have come from, I understand why they have become like this. And as opposed to kind of just labeling for the sake of like labeling and externalizing, it's more for the sake of understanding and, and witnessing that this is not, this does make sense, even though it is sad and, and difficult and to, and to be able to understand people's, people arise in these ways out of, out of their own pain, um, oftentimes. And I think, you know, for us, this, the three C's in terms of the three C's, it was the different levels of being able to kind of move forward from like this idea of like having, being paralyzed and, and consumed by your imposter syndrome to this place of agency and freedom. And the, the first phase is clarify. And so in that phase, you're really trying to understand where did this come from? What are your triggers? And what is the narrative that you tell yourself? And how do you how you help yourself understand what is the basic foundation of your imposter syndrome? Because I think that makes it a much more personalized experience because everyone's imposter syndrome behaves and comes from different places. And when you understand yours really well, it makes it more empowering to kind of know what the moments where you're going to be triggered and then how to deal with it. And then the second phase is choose. And it's about choosing new behaviors um, that are counter the imposter syndrome. So for example, it's about understanding triggers and trapdoors, understanding when 
you are having an automatic negative thought that's prompted by the imposter syndrome and how to counter that thought, how to categorize those automatic negative thoughts into particular areas so that you understand, oh, that's a mind reading thought, or, oh, that's, you know, a thought where I'm emotionally labeling. So you, you really understand where the thought is coming from and what it's doing. And then you have a way of countering it and, and challenging it. So you come up with a rational response, something that's much more grounded in reality. And then also self-care. Self-care is so incredibly critical. And when we have imposter syndrome, we typically put ourselves at the bottom of the totem pole. Like our priority to take care of ourselves is way after we do everything else. And so, and it, this leads us to burnout. This leads us to having less agency, less resources for us to actually do the things that are meaningful for us. And so we teach you how to think about self-care, how to begin to embed it in your schedule and your habits, to really value it as critical to your success. And so that's that phase. And the last phase is create. <laughs> it took me a second, I blanked. Um, it's create. And that's where you're creating an opportunity for yourself to behave differently and, cre- and looking at the ways in which you've behaved in the past and, and saying, okay, I'm going to actually choose differently from the behaviors that I've learned previously. And I'm going to actually create new opportunities for myself. And so one of the things we talk about in that chapter is that we tend to get in very rigid roles. Um, when we have imposter syndrome, we like to be the super person, every, you know, coming to save the day, you know, like we like to be the person who, you know, if someone needs help, we're like first to raise our hand. And so like we can get into these habits that are really depleting for ourselves and really keep us in this very narrow framework of imposter syndrome. In that particular area and step, we're teaching you how to take on new roles, how to ask and seek help and receive it how to engage in different ways that are very foreign for us and make us feel very anxious, but are so critical to having a much more holistic and rounded sense of self and also allow us to build a stronger community around us, which is the next step, which is really building your dream team and really knowing who you need around you, including mentors and an imposter syndrome expert and all these different people that you need around you to help you keep moving forward like you were talking about before with, with my husband and sort of how he kept saying the same things over and over again to remind me and, and to, of who I was, what I was capable of. And he's my imposter syndrome expert um, in my own dream team. And having him was so critical because if I didn't, if I had a vacuum and I wasn't hearing other voices, I might've easily succumbed back into a, a realm of, of the imposter syndrome again. But he was really good at like keeping me focused on breaking this, this experience. And so I think, you know, having these people around you can be really critical and not doing it alone and, and, and knowing that doing it alone is the imposter syndrome. It's trying to protect you from being found out, but it is unhealthy. And the final step is really being able to take all your learnings and, and to hold them in some very, in the chapter, it's about a very formalized way with these coping cards where we're teaching you to take all that you've learned and take it with you, which is what we do in our work. You know, a lot of times in our work, they call it formally that when you're terminating with a client, but we call it graduating. When a client's graduating with us, you know, we often will, will kind of go over the skills. Sometimes we'll actually make them develop these cards, you know, to remember what they've learned so that they take it with them. The idea is that the cards are external at first, but eventually when you keep using them and practicing them, then they become internal and you don't need them. You know, it's all this ideas of neuroplasticity and grooving is that you're trying to help people who, who read the book, who are working on their imposter syndrome to take the old behaviors and try to groove new ones, but it takes a conscious intentionality and it takes a lot of repetition of the new skills for you to be able to acquire them. 
And so that's the last phase is kind of really understanding what it takes to kind of internalize all this, take it with you. Thank you for going through those steps. And I will say this book, it's wonderful. It's not pointed. It doesn't blame. It doesn't uh, project. I think that's important because in our conversation, our listeners can think like, dang, this is going to be like rough. And <laughs> it is, it is intense, but it's not, it's not pointed in any way. It doesn't project in any way. And you think of part of what helps to refine those edges that can kind of make us feel triggered while we're reading it are the case studies. When we come across these case studies and we, we read about people that are dealing with issues, it resonates and it's like, oh, you know, we really, it really internalizes. I'm not the only one dealing with this. This person was dealing with this really intense situation and through this work is, is finding themselves on the other side of it. So I really want to encourage our listeners, not only to, to buy the book, to read the book, to do the work and go into it, knowing that there is a certain level of accountability and responsibility that is always going to be involved in rectifying imposter syndrome. But this book really is your, it's, it's like your, your imposter syndrome um, expert. It's your, it's your buddy (laughs) in the process as, as silly as that can sound, it really does help. So what I think I'm going to do, I haven't done this before, but I'm encouraged to do this as I think I'll do a giveaway of the book for, um, for a listener, for someone on social media, because I think it's, um, it's, it's just so vital. It's just so vital. And um, I think I'm moved to do that. So um, I'll do that on, on social media and we'll and, have... And because you're going to do that, I'll do something too that I haven't really done before, which is that I'll add something special to that giveaway that you really can't get anywhere else. I'll add the e-journal and I'll add some ants cards and some other pieces for your, for your listeners if they want to do oh it that goodness. you can't really get anywhere else. So, Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. I am not exaggerating when I say that having this book and doing this work has been life-changing. I, you know, that's, I love, I can't tell you how much I love hearing that because that is why we did the book. The book was to change people's lives so that they can really sit in their greatness because, you know, I think you're, everything you say is right about like, it is hard and it's work and you have to be accountable. I think though on the other side, you will never be sorry. You did the work. I am never sorry that I did the work. Never. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate your time and this conversation. What last words do you have for our listeners? I think my last words are like, if you're struggling with this, face it. It's not going to go away on its own. It's not going to go away magically. You have to face it. It is so worth it to face it because it really does help you when you can kind of move away from your imposter syndrome and really sit and acknowledge your accomplishments, your skills, your strengths, your expertise. It really does allow you to see the world in a completely different way and to really approach the things that you want with a lot more freedom and choice. And so I I think it's done that for me. And I think, you know, it's done that from people I've watched do the work. And so it's so important. Like I, I really encourage you to take it out. Thank you so much, Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin. I appreciate you being here with us and giving us all of these skills, these habits, (laughs) these resources that will propel us forward. You're so welcome. It was my joy. That was my conversation with Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin about overcoming imposter syndrome. I encourage you all to purchase her book and do the necessary work to overcome imposter syndrome. You'll be better for it. To enter the giveaway for a physical copy of the book and the digital toolkit, visit the LPDcast Instagram 
at lpdcast on Instagram. If you have any questions, you can email me at lpdcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Eloy Garcia, and as always, thank you for listening.